Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Yes, hello out there, and welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcasts. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. And Flynn, we start tonight's episode with a report on something I did last night, which was quite unusual. I saw the folk artist, Aoife O'Donovan, who is currently on tour and playing Nebraska from start to finish. Now, that's impressive. Even Bruce hasn't done that yet, and i love to see him take a shot at it. So uh, what was her performance like? Well, the main set is Nebraska in its entirety, nothing else. The versions are pretty straightforward. I thought that it was very good. She's very impressive. She encored with original material. I thought was really good as well. Some of it, I think, was more successful than other parts of it. Uh, I posted to our Twitter account today a part of State Trooper, which I thought was magnificent. That tends to be my favorite song from that record anyway. Some of the other songs, I felt that perhaps she didn't inhabit the characters enough. And that's why it would be so interesting to see Bruce do it, because as we've talked about in all the Nebraska episodes we've done in the last year, especially when Warren was on, there's a mindset to the record that I think the artist really has to be in to inhabit those characters. And She's a wonderful artist. Uh, again, the three songs she did in the encores of her own, I, I thought were really impressive. I, of course, am not that familiar with her music, and I, and I really thought she did a great job. But it is a big task to take on to play Nebraska from start to finish. I can imagine. As you said, they really have to, an artist would really have to delve into the characters. They would have to take on that mindset to, to really make it, to make it be really effective. That's not easy, and it's definitely not it would not be an enjoyable experience to do. It probably would be pretty difficult to do on any kind of regular basis. That's one of the things. She seems like an incredibly sweet person, which, of course, is the exact opposite of the type of person you would think would be inhabiting these songs. And perhaps that's why Bruce has never done it himself, because he was in that mindset that we talked about with Warren at the time when these songs were recorded and captured, and maybe he wouldn't want to do shows, especially if he had to do it again and again, where he did have to go to that place every night. It it, it seems pretty daunting. Well, there hasn't been an opportunity in his career for him to do it. He Obviously, in 1982 and to 84, he wasn't going to do anything that solo, and uh, when he did uh, Tom Joad, he never did that album front to back. I mean, he did all the songs from the album at a couple of shows, most notably uh, the Philadelphia 95 show that was released. And and then on, on Devils and Dust, it feels like he was just too kind of, you know, going all over the place. And we had heard he was going to do try to do it at the end of 2009 uh, after he had done the other albums from 73 to 84. But I guess it would just too much to really put together, but I definitely don't see him touring behind it in in such an arrangement. Uh, I can see him doing a lot of Nebraska material like he did at Christic and certainly on both the solo tours, but 
every night, the whole album, uh, just I don't think that's ever going to happen. Probably not, which makes what I experienced last night pretty unique. We've seen some of the other albums straight through, and now I can say I've seen Nebraska straight through, even though it's with an artist other than Bruce, which is definitely unusual. Now, you had told me that she had been doing Child Bride in in the encores of, of some of her shows and but then you told me he didn't she didn't do it last night but that's got to be that's pretty correct. interesting i was shocked when i saw that because i didn't know that much about her before i started looking into her career when i got the tickets because the show at the troubadour i'm on the mailing list of course because i go to other shows there and i was like wow what is this this woman is playing nebraska straight through that seems really challenging and really cool so I had looked up some of the set list she had done, and she was doing Child Pride, which is <laughs> tremendously cool on her part. She didn't do it last night. I think last night what happened was that she's got a following, uh, and she's won Grammys. She's in a band called On With Her with another artist named Sarah Watkins, who guested last night. Sarah is also in Nickel Creek, which is a pretty big band, and I think that at the end of the Nebraska set, she wanted to give her fans who were there a chance to hear some of her own material and and very worthy airings of those songs. Because like I said, I'm not really familiar with the music, but I thought they were great. And she did not do Child Pride, which was a slight disappointment. It would have been a little surreal, to be totally honest. I can imagine. It's And that's told in the, from the perspective of a, of a man. So, and I guess several others were too. Like, did she make any kind of adjustments for that? No, not really. Not that I recall. The, the versions were pretty straightforward. I think she did a Nebraska event streaming during the pandemic. And also if you go on to the web, you'll find various versions of the songs from Nebraska that she's done. There was also a PBS report, which I watched before I saw the show on her where they had footage of various Nebraska songs. So it seemed pretty straightforward to me. Of course, it was only one time and I was trying to take everything in, but very, very high quality. And she's still got a couple of shows left on this Nebraska tour. So if you get a chance, she's definitely worth seeing it. It it was $25. I mean, tremendous for $25 to get out in LA for a night of music. So any chance absolutely she's, no complaints here. Any chance she's going to be in New York or did I miss it? <laughs> I believe you missed it. I, mm-hmm. I think she said the Phil, the cities are San Francisco, Boulder, Colorado, and Philly that remain. Oh, okay. All right. Well, it sounds like a, a cool event. Sounds like you saw a great album performed in a, in a, in a pretty, pretty strong uh, performance. Yeah, I really like when artists do that sort of thing, especially with Bruce, because it is a big challenge. And, and she even talked about it like, you know, what was I thinking taking on such a big task? And just the way she did it was very, very confident. And it was, a, as I say, it was a very enjoyable evening. Now, has she released a studio take of, of this album or or a live one? I did purchase last night. They have... Ifo Donovan plays Nebraska on vinyl. It's okay. also available on her Bandcamp. So if you go check that out, you can also download it, and it is available. Okay. So wait, is that studio or live? I'm not sure because I haven't listened to it yet. I I don't think she's done it in the studio. I'm not sure to be totally honest. I have okay. I have to listen to it. All right, that would be interesting. 
That would be interesting. I can report back if you wish. Okay. <laughs> sounds sounds good. Now, we're going to be doing something special on our Patreon account. We're going to be kind of dipping back. Uh, they started the live series way back in uh, at the end of 14. And, of course, we didn't go on the air until September of 19. So we got like five years of live releases to discuss. And uh, it's going to be fun to do on our uh, on our Patreon. We're going to start with the first one, the Apollo, and work our way through. I think I counted there were 46 releases that we did not cover prior to our show starting. So once a month, we're going to do a special episode on Patreon called the NBTB Archive Look Back, where we'll look at each one of those archives that have been released over the years, and we'll see. Who knows if we'll still be going in four years? Let's, <laughs> let's hope so. Yeah, that will be a will be a challenge. And look, we got uh, content for four years. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to discussing the Nassau Coliseum shows as well as uh, even uh, Passaic and in uh, Winterland. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be fun. So and that's on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash MBTV podcast. Something else we're going to be doing. We don't know exactly when this is going to start yet because it's not in our control. But when. Bruce resumes the archive series officially. We're going to also do a mini episode. This will be on our main podcast distributed via Evergreen. So if you're on Apple Podcasts, Google, wherever, you'll be able to get that. It has nothing to do with Patreon. But what we're going to do is now that Backstreets is gone, we're going to do a special mini episode for each archive released to sort of review it like Backstreets used to do because their presence is definitely going to be missed in that regard. Yeah, we're going to talk about not just the recording, but of course the show itself and how it represents that tour or that part of the tour or or that part of his career. So we're going to uh, take a, a deep look into that, whatever era they uh, that they release. Yeah, that'll be fun. And again, I, I always thought those Backstreet's pieces on the day of the release were invaluable and it's it's really too bad that's not going to be there anymore but we're going to pick up the slack we won't do it on friday morning because we want to be able to listen to the releases and uh, perhaps this is giving something away since flynn and i both wrote various reviews for backstreets over the years but the truth was we wrote those reviews without having heard the archives because we did not get early copies of them And we were basically writing or if someone else did it other than Flynn and myself, whoever was doing the review wrote about the show and what they had experienced more so than the archive itself. But because the way we do this show, we want to be able to hear it before we talk about it. So it'll come early the following week. I thought the Backstreet's pieces were were tremendously insightful, as you said, and they made a great compliment to Eric's essays on the Nug site. Now, of course, his his piece is always focused on the recording and talking about different different players and d- different instruments standing out here and there and the mix here and there. Uh, so uh, talking about the actual show and the in, in the context of that tour or that year, that's always valuable as well. Yeah, his pieces are great. And we got great beat feedback from Eric being on the show last time when we talked about the Christic. That was actually one of my favorite episodes. So again, we we thank him for that. And hopefully we will be talking about an official archive release sometime soon. Certainly, fingers crossed for at least Christmas. And we're not exactly sure what they were going to release this, but it will it will be after First Friday. So maybe December 1st, 
there will have been a release and that'll make everyone happy, I think. Yeah, we need something new to listen to. And I do expect one to come out for Christmas. I would be very surprised and, and disappointed if one isn't out for Christmas. And I still got some fingers crossed and toes crossed and whatever else crossed for for Friday, December 1st, but but we'll see what happens. We're recording this on Wednesday prior to December 1st, so we don't know yes. anything just yet. All right, let's move on to our main topic tonight. It's a big one. We did a episode for the 50th anniversary of Greetings. Now we're going to do one for the 50th anniversary of the Wild and the Innocent in the East Street Shuffle. And I think full disclosure, we've been talking about doing this for a while. It got a little delayed. We wanted to do the Christic episode with Eric. And also, this is not necessarily one of my favorite albums, and I, I think that applies to you as well. Yes, it does. Um, it just comes down to the fact that I, I'm a top 40 guy. I was a top 40 guy back in uh, in high school when I got into Bruce. I got into him through Born in the USA, all, all the singles and Going back to stuff like The River, or Hungry Heart especially, and then Born to Run, obviously. And these songs are very much different. Uh, they're definitely an evolution out of out of Greetings, but in some ways, Greetings was, was, was much more friendly to, to my top 40-styled uh, ears. So this one is, uh, yeah, they're not, not a lot of songs that I especially love on this album, and they're very different than what uh, than what I was used to. I totally agree with everything you said, although there are some songs on here that I love. I love the second side. The first side we'll talk about, and, and I think I've made this point before about the November 7th, 2009 show. I truly believe the three-song segment of Incident, Rosie, and New York City Serenade that night was probably the best 30 minutes of live music I've ever seen. It was incredible. But I fully understand what you're saying when you talk about the nature of the record. It's funny. I was thinking about it while I was listening, getting ready for this. And I heard Born to Run, as we've talked about before. That was the first one that I listened to. And from Thunder Road to Jungle Land, I couldn't stop listening to that record uh, over and over again. And then I heard Greetings and I didn't understand greetings as much, but Born to Run had made such a big impact on me, it didn't really matter. I was trying to think this morning, what would have happened if I had heard this one first? Would I be as big a Springsteen fan? And I don't know. I mean, like it is for both of us, I think, outside of our general musical <laughs> tastes. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. There's something like Kitty's Back really it was so strange to my top 40 ears and as well as wild billies and, and, and even East street shuffle. Now incident has got to be one of my favorite songs of all time. Definitely top 10 for me, but at the same time, I don't think I really fell in love with it until I heard the main point 75 recording. That's the opening, the solo opening version that is just, just amazing. So beautiful. And, and everyone loves it. And, and so yeah, it took me a while to really fall in love with that one. Now, Rosie, yeah, uh, that was on Live 7585. Heard it a bunch on, on the radio on DC 101 and at the time in the mid-80s. Still, it's that's, only, that's the only real like top 40-esque song that kind of has the the rhythm and, and the groove that, that I like and that my ears liked. And so the others kind of don't exactly thrill me that much, to be perfectly honest. Well, it's interesting because the lyrical content of this record, 
I think does harken back to greetings. It's a lot of words, but musically it is totally distinct. And there is a jazz infused R&B sound to this record that who knows if he would have continued with that. I mean, one of the big questions is what would have happened if Davey Sanctious had stayed in the E Street Band? Would Along with there have been... Right. I mean, would there have been more? Well, uh, Vinny was on this record. Yes, he was. But in in 74, I I guess I kind of jumped ahead. In 74, Vinny left, was asked to leave, whatever. And Boom Carter took over. And there was a time when there there were three three African-Americans in the band. Half the band was was black. And and that gave a much different feel to these songs, especially with I mean, Boom Carter had a he had more of a jazz feel to it. Davy Davy Sanchez obviously had that. He was just playing, just played amazing. And with all due respect to Roy, you're right. There would have been, there might have been a, a different, uh, different road forward. I think there would have been, and it, part of it also depends on Bruce's writing because one of the things that struck me as I was listening to this record which I have to say, I don't think I'd listened to this record straight through the studio version, maybe since I got the box when it was remastered, because I I don't recall listening to this in a long time. But the writing to me strikes me as much more allegorical here than certainly he would develop in the future. I mean, if you think of Born to Run, the writing is a lot more compact and, and direct. Just the Thunder Road, the first line, the screen door slams, Mary's dress sways, like a vision <laughs> she dances across the porch as the radio plays. It's like, to me, it sounds like direction out of a screenplay almost. And you don't have a lot of writing like that on this record at all. No, it's still pretty worry, But to me, I hear a lot more storytelling here, especially on incident in New York City serenade and and even even more on on Katie's back he's really telling the story about uh finding an unfaithful lover kind of thing and f- forgiving them and trying trying to get them back and and there's really it's it is kind of a musical bridge and even a lyrical bridge between greetings and born to run something like incident is definitely a precursor to jungle land and as is serenade and then certainly Rosalita, the the straight rock. It was was there was no rock basically on Greetings, whereas this time he brought a lot a lot of rock music, a lot of soul music as well. I mean, certainly East Street Shuffle is based on uh, Curtis Mayfield's uh, Monkey Time. Am I am, am I credit crediting the right songwriter? Was it somebody else? Yeah, you are. Mayfield wrote it, and then the song was recorded by Major Lance. Okay. Yeah, and so there was a lot more soul going on. He was trying to do do more more soulful stuff. I think he did a pretty good job in on shuffle. And then Kitty's back. That was just kind of all over the place musically, at least to my ears. Uh, the solos, uh, a lot of the piano and the organ just kind of go. You know, he he lets them play out. He lets them really really flex their muscles. And I'm sure live back at the time it was great, but on record for me, it just kind of I felt like it just went. It went nowhere. It was it was a long way going nowhere for me. Well, let's start with Shuffle and go track by track. As you noted, it was written by Curtis Mayfield, who has been a major influence for Bruce throughout his career. To me, it sounds like 
a call to arms, a call to life. You know, we're doing the E Street Shuffle. I do think that with this first statement on the second record, he wanted to bring his audience to the extent that it existed, because quite honestly, greetings hadn't sold all that well. But he wanted to bring his audience forward. And I know in Brian Hyde's book, it talks about that Bruce wanted to also bring the band much more to the forefront because, of course, he had not done that on Greetings. And as we know, Columbia really expected that Greetings was going to be a singer-songwriter kind of folk record a la Dylan. And even though it didn't fully go in that direction, he really wanted to break free here on Wild and the Innocent. Yeah, he really wanted to bring the band with him. And there were some... um... There was some reluctance at, at Columbia, and even after he turned in the album and they listened to it, one of the guys, one of those Sony or Columbia executives, said, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna take this. We're gonna go to a studio with some session guys, some professionals, and we're gonna redo it." And Bruce, he held his ground, which got to give him credit for that. He was standing up for his guys, standing up for his band, but at the same time, he certainly succeeded in alienating more more people like Columbia. He didn't have uh, Clive Davis and John Hammond in his corner anymore, so he was kind of on his own. And so, uh, yeah, and they, they didn't make it a secret that, that they didn't like him, but he brought the band, and you know they really do flex out. On, on Shuffle, you got that horn intro where they sounds like they're tuning up, and that's, that's fun. And that, the guitar, he finally brought a, an electric guitar in here because it wasn't, wasn't on Greetings. And maybe to me that uh, that I don't know what sound you call it sounds like the disco sound from the from the early seventies, and maybe that uh, kind of rubbed me the wrong way as well. But of course now it's it's a little bit more fun, and and I do enjoy this one a lot these days. Before we go on, I think we should mention the settings of these songs. I, I think pretty much everyone believes that the first side takes place in New Jersey, correct, and then the side. Two takes place in Manhattan. Yeah, that's the way I look at it. And of course, the Manhattan side is more romanticized than than the Jersey side, even though he does a pretty good job of glamorizing Asbury Park and, and, and Sandy. And that is the next track on the record. Very nostalgic track, uh, especially I think uh, he was so young. I mean, we forget because obviously you and I don't come into the picture until he's older. He was like 23 and a half, 24 when he recorded this record. Yeah, 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 he was. Yeah, it's funny. There was a, at the Wild the Innocent Symposium at the end of October, I guess it was Tom Cunningham said that, or Bob Santelli, I forget which one. I apologize, guys, that uh, he was performing. He would be performing shows up and down, you know, the East Coast or I guess in the New Jersey, Philadelphia area up to Boston. And then he would they would drive back and they would go straight to the studio and start recording. And, and the moderator said, Bruce, how, how did you do that? Well, I was 24. And he's right. When you're 24, you can play a show, drive three hours and record in the studio for another five. And of course, you have the energy and you have the passion. And obviously, that passion is what kept Bruce going. And and it really uh, I mean, it, it took him a long way here. Don't you know that you're a grown up? 
I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Sandy to me sounds like it was written by someone who was older and perhaps a little bit more wear and tear on them. Now, I don't know, maybe that's just my bias. What do you feel about that? Well, that's that's an interesting point. I kind of feel like by that time, as you said, he's 23 or 24. He's already been playing Asbury Park for like five years, uh, going back to when he was 18 or so. So he had seen a lot. He had kind of been around uh, those parts quite a bit. So that doesn't really surprise me. And one of my favorite lines about this song is from, from Bruce himself when he introduced it at the Asbury shows in 96. He said it was a goodbye letter, but at the same time, it was a love song. And because he was, it was a goodbye song, he was moving on. He didn't know where he was going. Uh, his career was kind of taking off a little bit here, maybe not uh, dramatically with, with the second album, but he was getting out. And then, but at the same time, he, he loved the town and he, uh, it was a love letter to it. He really did paint it in a way that made people want to come. Uh, I know I did. Now, Sandy is probably, no, it's not probably, it is my favorite song off the first side. And I think as it's been performed over the years, now there's variations in the lyrics on the record. He sings about a waitress who has lost their desire or her desire for him. And then over the years, he had, really moved away from that line until it did return. I think it was on the Magic Tour, right? I think it was on the Devils and Duster. I think he made oh, a was it? he made a comment at when he performed it and I forget where about the the long lost uh, waitress verse. We'll have to dig that up. I know that it was performed the waitress verse the night of Danny's final complete show with the band. We actually just talked about that one on Patreon because we just had the anniversary of that show, November 19, 2007. That was a very emotional show. 
I remember getting people's attention that the verse was performed that night. Perhaps he did that because of the emotion of the occasion. Yeah, I can see him wanting to do it more in the the straight album arrangement more so than he had been doing live, say, basically uh, 78 through uh, through 2003. And... It was it, it, that was a pretty cool moment, the doing the full song and and yeah, with Danny on accordion, it was great. I wonder why he did that. Uh, was it almost that it was too personal because it's thought that the waitress line is really probably someone <laughs> from his life. Well, it, looking at uh, various books and what Bruce wrote and what Brian Hyatt wrote, uh, Diane Lozito was supposedly the inspiration for Sandy and. Maybe the waitress was someone that he was kind of seeing on the side. Uh, I don't know. And so maybe that was the reason it got left out or just he wanted to trim the song a, a little bit. But that doesn't seem to that doesn't seem to fly very well in terms of my reasoning. But, you know, we, we just don't know. That's a question we may have to ask him. Well, it is more generic with the alternate line that he would later sing about the angels, because, of course, that's plural for one thing and not specific. <laughs> and. It's interesting. Of course, he's changed lines over the years. Uh, Darkness has had a ch- change line, but that seems to be related directly to his marital status where, you know, I, I lost my faith when I lost my wife. These are just the little things that, that he's done over the years. It, it, it's why this show, I think, exists and <laughs> why we have fun talking about these things, because there, there's a lot to take in here and interpret. Well, there's a there's a site, uh, SpringsceneLyrics.com, I believe, that actually has the transcribed lyrics for for many different performances of of basically everything he's ever done, performed, recorded, and I th- and there are several just of Sandy. So that would be an interesting uh, interesting read for for someone to do. That sounds cool. I'll I'll have to check that out. I haven't been on that site yet. Yeah, it's it's a pretty cool one. They got a lot of uh, alternate versions, a lot of. Uh, one one off performances and such so yeah it's it's worth a good read now let's move on to track 3 which is your favorite <laughs> song yeah. titty's back and it's listening to it on the record this song is really a funny one for me because i never really paid much attention to the studio version but then when we got the darkness bootlegs when i started listening to them and kitty's back popped up in some of them, it seemed like such a great live song. And then, of course, it disappeared for years. And in 2000, when it was played at the Christmas shows, it was such an incredibly stunning moment. And of course, now in 2023, where it's played every night, you and I are sort of like, okay, Kitty's back. We've we've had enough of that. But listening solely to the track as it was recorded, which I hadn't done in a long time. I agree with you. This is a track perhaps out of the, uh, what are there? There are seven tracks on this record, right? Yes. So this is probably the one that works the least for me in terms of the studio version. It does seem to go on for too long. Now it is obviously as you mentioned, the electric guitar did not appear on Greetings at all. This is really the first big guitar song where Bruce unleashes his talents. And that part of it is cool. But, and, and like, what the hell is going on in this song? Yeah, he, he talked about writing 
show-stopping songs, uh, Thundercrack being, being a prime example, where they do different uh, different pacing, where one, one part of the song is really fast, one part is really slow. And I, he, I can hear him trying it here, but it doesn't quite work the same. And and really, in, on on the record, it does. I don't think it works at all. Uh, I think it works pretty good in Rosie and, and and in Thundercrack, which was later released on tracks, obviously. But here, it just doesn't just doesn't grab me. And I, I know he he wanted to let the band really flex out, as I said earlier, but it just doesn't really go that far for me. So, and I guess the song is about a stripper, correct? <laughs> well, that's funny because um, Tom Cunningham asked him uh, at the symposium. He said, "Bruce, you know, you in concert in '74, you said you wrote the song after you saw a sign outside a strip joint that said Kitty's back.'" And Bruce just went, "Yeah," <laughs> as if not to confirm nor deny. And then that that little sign was also just described. I believe it was in Brian Hyatt's book. I don't think it's about a stripper specifically, not like Thundercrack is, but it's more about it's a actually it's a New York City song to me about losing his uh losing her on on Bleecker Street and a lot of New York City uh city imagery here. So I don't think it's about a stripper. I just think it's about a unfaithful girl, girlfriend. I think that's really interesting. And how do you reconcile that with what we were talking about earlier in the episode? The idea that side one takes place in New Jersey and side two takes place in a romanticized version of New York. Of course, Kitty's back is on side one. Yes, I, I know it's on side one, and I just kind of forgot about that when we were discussing it. Or we can look at that uh, his girlfriend left him and ran off to New York City, and that's where he tracked her down. Now, Brian's book, uh, The Stories Behind the Songs, which I have sitting right next to me, he actually made a point that I never considered about this song, that it was recorded shortly after Bruce had opened for Chicago. And of course, Chicago is known for very long R&B type songs themselves, where they stretch out 25 or 6 to 4. Uh, what's the song? The Beginnings, uh, uh, Saturday in the Park. <laughs> so I had never really considered that before. And it, what do you think on this one? It was Bruce heavily influenced by Chicago here? You know, that's that's a very valid question, and I don't really think I I have an answer. Um, maybe he was. I, I That was something that struck me as well when, when I was reading it that you reminded me of. But, I, I you know, I don't know. It's weird because I feel like only one of these songs, no, two of these songs were performed prior to uh, the Dimming release on the album, and that being Wild Billy's Circus Story, which was just done a circus story and then the evolution of New York city serenade from New York city song and New York song. And so this is one where we don't really know when, when exactly it was written, when exactly it, it debuted live. It may have been after the record was out. So I don't, that's a good question whether it was influenced by Chicago or not, but it certainly does have a, have a jazzy feel that, and especially with Clarence's horn on this one quite a bit, it very well may have been heavily influenced by that little tour. Now, neither you nor I are anything close to experts in the music of Chicago. That is to be sure. <laughs> well, not in that era. Uh, I, I like the singles, the top 40 singles, the schmaltzy stuff from the 80s when they were working with David Foster. So that's a little <laughs> bit different than Saturdays in the Park and 25 or 6 to 4. That is for sure. All right. Well, we'll have to investigate that in another time. Are you, so you're telling me like you really like if you leave me now and stuff like that. You're the inspiration. 
Uh, oh if, she if she would have been faithful, yes, that's the stuff I, I like from Chicago. I know I used to, there was a guy in our building who was in a tribute band, a Chicago tribute band. And I would be like, how do you guys do that stuff? And he's like, well, we usually make it a medley. And I'm like, oh, I would be so disappointed. <laughs> now, if but I yeah, remember correctly, he was not well received as an opener for Chicago, correct? <laughs> oh, he was not. They They tried hard. They played their hearts out. But as you know, very few people actually want to see a opening band, uh, unfortunately. And on paper, it doesn't seem like it worked really well. I don't see the stuff from Greetings, which was which he was still touring behind in mid seventy three, in June seventy three, uh, going very well with what Chicago was doing with with the big horns and sideshow. Definitely an odd pairing, and I don't I don't know if uh, how that worked out in the long run for Bruce, whether it, I don't think it helped them and I'll, but I don't think it hurt him either. All right. Well, let's move on to wild billies, which of course was originally called circus song. This is uh, an unusual song. I think for rock and roll, first of all, Gary talent plays tuba on this song. <laughs> I don't know how many rock songs have tuba on them. And Danny of course played accordion. And this song was based I think in in childhood stories that Bruce really loved the circus when it came to town when he was a kid. And in many ways to me, and it's funny because this came up when we were talking to Eric about the Christic because Wild Billies had been played there, which was a, a massive shock as as we were discussing. To me, the writing here, does it foreshadow the writing on Nebraska a little bit, more so than probably anything else early in his career? Well, I never thought about that, but he does explore the dark side of of the circus. Uh, he said that he was always fascinated by looking looking down the aisle of, of tents and such where the circus people lived and what went on with them when they weren't performing and and so it is kind of the seedier, darker side of, of life. And in that way, I guess it foreshadows Nebraska in some fashion. Now, what struck me, of course, is the fact that it's kind of, a, as Bruce called it, secretly sexual about the about the sword swallower's blade. And, and in that respect, it, he pulled it out in Asbury Park in 96, where uh, it went in the place of Pilgrim and Temple of Love. So... If there was any doubt about the the sexual nature of the song, it should have been ended right there. That's actually really funny. I've never considered that before. And of course, this song ends side one of the record. So let's flip the record over and go to side two. Certainly, as we were discussing earlier, for the two of us, we vastly prefer the second side. And let's get into it because these are, in my opinion, three magnificent songs. I'm not sure if you hold them in as high esteem as I do. But all the live performances, listening to it on the record, to me, this this all just works. And and as I, I think we were saying also that these songs take place in Manhattan. They're very romanticized. He was someone who lived on the shore, who sort of looked at Manhattan as this magical place that they didn't really get to go to that much. He has spoken about that at length, I think, both in the Broadway show and also in his book. And we we really get a sense of what he's dreaming about here, right? I would say so. Talking about looking down from the fire escapes at the kids playing that down below and and obviously Puerto Rican Jane. And it really is a kind of a romanticized version, even though there are some there are some dark 
dark elements about summer sweet, but it, I, guess, I guess it ain't no summer's long, but I guess it ain't so sweet anymore. And that's that kind of hints at, at a darkness there. And it's just a a beautiful song, and the the piano is is what makes it throughout, and certainly the opening of it, and then and then at the end when it kind of it was two pieces of music, they they put it together with that with Davy on piano that just takes it over. And I remember Dave Marsh comparing it to the end of Layla, and I think he has a pretty good point there. It's it's absolutely magnificent. Yeah, I think the key to me is the portion of the song where he says, and of course this refrain repeats over and over again at the end, good night, it's all right, Jane. There's Not only is the song a romanticized version of New York City, but it's also, I think, a very romantic song. There's the character Spanish Johnny is clearly up to some no, some things that are no good, and he returns to his girl every night, but then he goes out and perhaps he finds more trouble. And, and the song sort of leaves it undetermined as to whether they ever are fully together, right? Certainly. And and as you said, the uh the refrain about good night, it's all right, that is a romanticized version of, of that of that kind of life. It's it's gonna be all right. That's that's romance. That's that hope that it will be it will be all right. And it's just a there were some comparisons to Romeo and Juliet. And I don't know if I really see that. I to me Romeo and Juliet or West Side Story, they were about the people from fighting gangs who who got together and I, I really don't see that. I see the, them as being a couple. Uh, they're together. They're not. There's no fighting going on, as far as I can tell. Well, there's no fighting going on between the lovers. I do think he is mixed up in some stuff. It seems like she's always concerned that he's not going to come back one of these nights. Not necessarily because he's ditching her, but because he could be killed. Am I misreading that? No, I, th- I think you're right. But it's not like there are two fighting families or fighting gangs right. I, I see that, what you're that they're each that they're each a part of. I mean, that was the whole thing, right? With yeah. in West Side Story, they were members of rival gangs, as at least as much as a girl or a woman could be part of a gang. Uh, and that, at that point, so I don't see it as as that kind of Romeo and Juliet West Side Story thing. I think it's just that he's going out. He's he's probably a petty criminal. He's part of a gang, whatever. And that, yeah, she worries that he may not come home. He may not, he may get into trouble that he can't get out of. We would agree this is a love song. Ooh, well, I believe it is. Yes. Uh, Bruce called it that on the Devils and Dust tour. Um, he's, uh, he was writing, writing love songs just to get the girls to take down their pants. <laughs> um, that's and, actually one of the great lines he's ever said, which is that the unwritten last line of pretty much every rock song is, and will you pull your pants down now? Yes, yes. He was pretty pretty blatant about it, at least in the early 70s, and and he was finally comfortable to talk about it later on, and, and obviously in 2005. But yeah, it's a love song. It's, it may not be a romantic love song, but it's a love song about uh, Spanish Johnny and uh, Puerto Rican Jane. This is my favorite song off this record. I really love it so much. Same here. Uh, this is just, there's no bad version of this song ever. Uh, as I said, I fell in love with this one. Not on the record, not when I first heard it, but when I but when I got that main point bootleg in the fall of 88, that was when this song just exploded for me in my mind. It was just such a beautiful version. And 
And obviously that was one of the songs that a lot of people were chasing during uh, on the reunion tour and the reunion era in some ways, waiting for the solo piano version to come out. And, and it finally did in, in 2001 and it was worth it. <laughs> and then since then he's done it, he's done it quite a bit, at least when he was doing solo piano stuff. So I hope everybody just had a chance to at least hear it or if not see it. It's truly the one song that I can think of where you're right, whatever the arrangement it's, tremendous you know there are certain songs where i like one arrangement more than another like for you i i and we were very lucky to see the for you version on solo piano a, a couple of times to me that's better than the band version here when he sat down that night in 2001 to start the show and played the piano version of incident it was just it was mind-boggling and the band versions the way it builds especially in the the few times now, well, he's actually done it more than a few times because of 2016, but the times that he's done it where it goes into Rosalita, it's it's very hard to top. Absolutely. Uh, my wife calls it the best segue of all time, uh, both on the record and whenever he does it live. And, and it's kind of hard to argue with her on that one, the way that there is a tension in, in that ending piece of music and incident. And then it just, kind of fades it doesn't even really fade out it just kind of stomps and boom you had the intro guitar to, to, to rosie and everything just explodes and yeah that is even on record you don't, you don't have a, you don't have a lot of great segues on record but that's this is this is the best that's actually really interesting that you said that and that you just got my mind going i'm like segues between songs famous ones uh, certainly this probably is the best one. Uh, the other one that jumped to mind immediately when you said that was we will rock you into we are the champions. Uh, that's almost, I almost hear that as one song, but maybe because they, they always play it or they uh, rock stations always play it as one song together. It's very rare that they're, that they're separated. And, but that doesn't happen with, with incident and Rosie. So it should. It should happen every time. Every time East Street Radio doesn't play Rosie out of incident, it's like, ah, what are you doing? But fortunately, we got a chance to hear it a bunch of times in um, in 2016. And and, he, and at the album performances that, that you saw, and I guess, it has how many times has it been done? Twice? Three times? The complete album, I believe, has been done twice. The, the first time we saw it at the Garden, and then the one time in Australia. And Side 2 has before, been performed complete. Well, it was Rome. I'm not sure if there are any others beyond that. I don't think so. Okay. I know Rome. I didn't, but I think that also included Kitty's Back, but not Wild Billy. So Because in 2016, um, all three songs here appeared in a bunch of shows, but obviously Incident went into Rosalita, but New York City Serenade opened all those shows. Right. He's rarely played the whole side in order. Yes. Uh, that is that is for sure. Even going back to the time, the, the, the 70s, he didn't do it much then either, did he? Uh, not at all. Because um, he, he would open the shows in 74, 75 with with the solo version and obviously Rosie would still be the set, the main set ender. So they were really, really separated. And then the few times he did it when it wasn't in the middle of a show on the reunion tour, you just a rising tour. You just wanted it to happen. And he actually at the Philadelphia show, eight eleven oh three on the rising tour, the howling at the moon show, he did incident. And he, you know, he was going to do Rosie because he was doing Rosie every night. And but he just he didn't take the opportunity to to do it, and that really would have put that show 
I mean, even more on the stratosphere than it already was. So and that brings us to Rosalita, the the one track off this record that is, even though it wasn't a chart hit, it is a greatest hit for sure. And it is one of the earlier things that I remember from Bruce because, of course, the Rosalita video was the first thing serviced to MTV back in the 80s. Well, I guess maybe there was the Atlantic City video. I forget exactly the full timing of that, but he didn't appear in Atlantic City. <laughs> and Rosalita was a live video showing the Eastry Band in its full glory, to be sure. And and that made an impact on me and many, many other people. But even on the record, I mean, this is a song that I it really works well. I mean, we're not going to knock Rosalita, right? <laughs> no, it really does explode out of the speakers, even, even on the crappy tape version that I had. Uh, back in when I first got it in '86, it it made it made an impact on me, and I think having it on live '75, '85 also elevated even the the album version. And I think was it Brian Hyatt called it the fir- his first great rock song uh, in, in in the That's book fair. stories behind the song, and and that works. And it really, unfortunately, it's seven minutes long, uh, so it wasn't going to get played on radio. But this is the only this is the only song on on this record where. That could have been a single to, to some extent. It could have been, could have made the charts, could have made at least, you know, rock radio at the time and certainly uh, conveyed to become a rock radio staple f- for all eternity. But at seven minutes, it just, it just wasn't happening. But it still gets played quite a bit, even on, even today, even if it's seven minutes and it still, still gets played on NEW. Well, the truth is, and we haven't talked about it as much because it's not really a key component of the record, but this record was not going to get radio play anyway because <laughs> the label hated it and really hey, wanted to bury it. They so, act, well, they, and they actively did bury it. They they what was the, they said, hey, play Boz Caddox, play Billy Joel, and oh, that Bruce Springsteen album, toss it in the trash. That's basically what they were saying. This is sort of an inside baseball thing in the entertainment industry. But the funny thing is, the head of Columbia at that point was Charles Copelman, who is a legendary music guy. His son, Brian, is the creator of Billions, the TV show on Showtime, which he's a huge Springsteen fan. And he talks about this. If you follow Brian's Twitter feed and you... Uh, watch the show, but there's a million Springsteen references in that show. And it is pretty funny because his father literally tried to bury Bruce pretty much in 1974. Well, Compliment was one of the guys I alluded to earlier. He's reported by Bruce Bass. That's having said, guys, we may have come to the end of our time with Bruce Springsteen after he heard the record for the first time. Yeah, that's crazy. He just got no backing from the label at all. No ad campaign, no promo the record was basically buried. And of course, that's, as we all know, that sets up the story that would continue as we get to 1975. And Bruce was under the pressure, knowing that he was on the verge of being kicked off the label. And and as we know, <laughs> born to run results from that. Well, you uh, you skipped over one little one little incident, so to speak, that happened halfway between those two things. And that is a certain rock critic in, in in the Boston area wrote a certain line about, I have seen rock and roll future and its name is Bruce Springsteen. Because that line did become the centerpiece of of a CBS ad campaign, at least to a certain extent, that 
kind of rejuvenated Bruce Bruce at the label. It didn't take any pressure off. I guess I guess that he was it, it got him off the pressure in terms of being dropped at that point pre pre born to run. But he but all that pressure got got put on to the making of Born to Run and how it was a make or break album for him in a lot of ways. And I, these stories, it's just, it's like we've said before, it's like a what if, and you know, we're talking about alternate universe now. What if this record had gotten more promo? What if Born to Run hadn't happened? Of course, we'll never be able to answer those questions. But it, it, it's fun to think about because, uh, as we know, Bruce's one of the most legendary musicians who's ever been on the planet. And his career was literally hanging by a thread for really 18 months to two years. And as you know, he got the huge boost from Landau's quote, but that was, uh, I think I, that was in May of 74, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was about yeah. half week. Yeah. So, so that's a full, I'm, I'm trying to run it through my head, seven or eight months after this record comes out. Right. And then and and a year and four months before the next one would come out. So, yeah, it, it's it's saved him. And it, I guess it bought him a little bit more time with with the making of Born to Run, because uh, you can bet that they had actually finished a song Born to Run in the summer of 74. You would have you would have you know that Sony or CBS would have loved to have been able to release something that that fall at the latest and to not have it for another year, or literally another year, which is an eternity. At that, that point in the music business, it, that was a big deal. Hi, this is Paul Phelps. And this is Monica Strutt. And we're from the Daily Music Business Podcast. We're joined by a number of other really great hosts in creating daily content with great advice for independent musicians just like you. That's right. We put out episodes daily on all topics from music marketing to branding, advice on signing with a manager and label and anything else you need to up-level the business side of your music career. We've got it covered. Subscribe to the Daily Music Business Podcast today on your favorite podcast catcher. Subscribe today to the Daily Music Business Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Now, let's get back just to the heart of Rosalita. As we know it's based roughly on uh, Jay and the Americans Come a Little Bit Closer, which, of course, he would use as an intro to the song many, many times over the years. And I have to find out more about this Diane Lozito. Now, I know Brian's <laughs> book cites that she claims she was the inspiration for Rosalita. I have no idea if that's correct or not. And as we know, over the history of rock and roll, many people come forward and claim they're the inspiration for things and perhaps they are, perhaps they're not. But uh, what do you know about this woman? <laughs> it's it's funny. I guess I should know more about her. Yeah. Well, one of the books I was I was reading the other night in preparation for this, and it was about another another woman, another girl, a girl that he uh, he dated actually in high school, and obviously her parents hated him as well. <laughs> and so they were actually going to get a an injunction, a legal court injunction, to to keep Bruce away from her and. I think that had a lot of uh, brought a lot of inspiration into that song as well. So it wasn't just Diane because it sounded like they were they were together for a bit. Uh, I don't know about how long, three, probably about a year, which is an eternity for Bruce at that time. But it doesn't sound like her parents really uh, complained too much. But but maybe. 
Yeah, a man not well, uh, well, a kid really at the time, not a man, but not well liked <laughs> by his girlfriend's parents, just generally, it sounds like. Well, it sounds like from what he he said that the, all the freehold didn't like him. <laughs> they didn't like the, they didn't like the freak. I think he described it as freak hating on, on Broadway, but, but yeah, he wasn't popular in his hometown. Well, I guess look at him now. So, <laughs> yes. Yes, there's a line in Freehold. I wonder if they would uh, they would still get the itch if they knew I would make it rich. That's right. And let's get to the last song here, New York City Serenade. Now, we could probably do an entire episode on this one itself. It truly is an epic. It's an epic on the record. It's a tale. Now, this is another song. When I read the lyrics to this song, I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Do you, uh, uh, now, the key line, I think, is, so walk tall or baby don't walk at all, which sort of is his mindset and his mantra. So that is totally understandable. But some of these other lyrics seem crazy. Like, what is a fish lady? Is it really just a woman who sells fish? I don't know. But the junk man, uh, there was some speculation. The junk man was his grandfather who would go around and collect pieces of radios and then bring it back to the house and fix it. So that's, uh, you know, l- listen to your junk man. He's singing. So I guess maybe his, his grandfather was singing as he, as he worked. But I want to put cleats on my boots. I, I got to say that one time I'm going to do that. I'm going to have cleats installed on the bottom of my cowboy boots. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing that. You should probably wear them to a show. But uh, all kidding aside, uh, this is a song, uh, and we know there's a heavy Van Morrison influence here now. Again, I can't claim to be the biggest Van Morrison fan. In fact, I've never really gotten him as much as some other people I know. But obviously, Bruce cares deeply about him. And did Bruce talk about that at all when they were at the symposium? A little bit. He just said that it was on his mind. I mean, Astral Astral Weeks was just just amazing to him. It really uh, really spoke to him. So he was kind of trying to go for that for that kind of vibe vibe in the song and in terms of vibe i think it's the tone is set by davy sanctius's intro which is really involved and to read what they went through apparently he improv now sanctius was also at the symposium right yes yes did he talk about how the intro was how it came together at all yeah Uh, well the first off the the first few musical elements you hear is that harps that harp like sound right. which is actually him going a, strumming the strings of the piano manually he's so he's playing the piano but it's playing it in a totally different way and it was that just had its own sound and then he was talking about it how bruce just said let him just go just improvise and so that's what that's what he did and it really came out obviously it came out gorgeous it did, and he really set a high bar. Now, I, I think that there are not too many better piano players than Roy Bidden. I don't know that Roy himself has ever really captured the full feel of the album intro. On the reunion tour, they didn't even try. In 2016, they they did more of the, well, starting in 2009, because when they did the full performance of The Wild and the Innocent that night at the Garden, and he had a string section on stage for the song as he would in 2016. They did do the the fuller, more realized intro, and 
It was magnificent. Has Roy ever fully gotten the intro as Sanctus created it? You know, I don't think so. Um, but of course, prior to 2016, they had really, hadn't done it very often, um, right? Because because he really stopped playing it like by the end of the by the end of 75, and it didn't show up again until uh, until August 11th, 99, and it was one of about what five or six times it was done on the reunion tour, then just once on the rising. So he really didn't get a lot of opportunities to try. And you're right, they did just kind of go into the song more more or less and then and just skipping that the extended piano intro well this is really i think the signature moment for sanctus as far as his time in the e street band and there there's something about this song even though i don't fully, fully don't understand everything that's going on in it even as i'm singing along to it and going wow this is blowing my mind but the entire th- thing, I mean, musically, this really does stand out compared to some of the other pieces. I know earlier in the episode, you mentioned that in a way it foreshadows Jungle Land. But to me, this is a much more complicated musical piece. Jungle Land has different sections, but ultimately at the heart of those sections, it's all still rock and roll. I, I think obviously <laughs> parts of this song are are not as true to to rock and roll. I'm not even sure how you would classify w- what's happening here. It's not it, there's some R&B, I think especially when you get to the hand claps and stuff like that. But uh, what what genre would you put this song into? Oh, I have no idea. A lot of people would say it's kind of jazzy. I'm not familiar with jazz enough to to make even a that kind of speculation or or guess. It's just Bruce's own little little genre and what I learned about this song and I hadn't realized is that there's no drums there's no actual like Vinny Lopez is not playing drums he's like playing some percussion Richie Richard Blackwell is playing some percussion but it's not like someone sitting behind a kit and to me that's I'm like huh that's that's true because it's it's mostly as you said hand claps is that's like the biggest biggest thing you hear but it's the piano and the and the guitar that really and organ that make this song really really rev along it's just it's it's interesting it's it's amazing see and this is where the fact that my tastes don't really go to van morrison and and that kind of stuff leaves me at a little bit of a deficit here because it it is hard hard to classify and just taking jungle lamp for example like that's something, and because it concludes the record when you listen to Born to Run Straight Through, and by the time you get to Jungle Land, I, I, it has a, a bit of a different impact for me than New York City Serenade does, even though I, I love this song. I, I think the feel, you would agree that Jungle Land is, feels like just more like a, a very epic rock song. It, it doesn't have any of these other flourishes of all these other genres that are present here. No, no, you're right. Jungle Land is a, is a rock epic, an epic rock song. And this one is, <laughs> I don't, as you just said, I don't know what this is. It's he's painting scenes of, of a city and he's sketching music to go with it. And it's and it's very romanticized as, as we were talking earlier. And yeah, there's no, 
Yeah, this wasn't getting played on the radio in 1973 or 74. No, it was not. But it does, as I said, the so walk tall or baby don't walk at all line is, I think, a key line for him. And also later in the song, of course, I'm a young man and I talk real loud. I walk real proud for you. So shake it away. That is really the Springsteen mission at that point. No. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it is. He's uh, he's going for it. He's walking. He's walking tall. He's walking proud. He's going to do it. And he did it. And he did do it. And this was announcing that intention. And oddly enough, which may have been surprising to him, uh, this would be, and I don't know if they talked about this at the symposium. Did they ask, did anyone, Tom or whoever spoke to him, ask what he felt when the label did not back this record and basically was letting it die? And he, uh, I would assume any artist who's put their blood and sweat into their work, that would be very disturbing. But did he, did he speak to that at all? Well, he, he was frustrated by it, obviously, but he didn't, he didn't, he didn't talk about it too much. It's, it's in the book, in his Born to Run book, where this is the album he wanted to create and, and he, and he did it. And they somehow CBS released it and, and while they were certainly down on it, he was very proud of it. It's an album that he's very proud of it to this day. And and I see why. And even though it's not commercial, it's certainly, it's certainly epic in its own way. Well, and I think he has made that as clear as can be by the fact that three songs from this record have been played extremely regularly on the current tour, uh, East Street Shuffle, Kitty's Back, and of course, Rosalita. And we haven't even seen that kind of coverage. You and I have talked about it over the year. You know, Greetings, which also celebrated its 50th anniversary this year, really has had very little impact on the 2023 tour. Now, Spirit and the Night did finally make an appearance the last couple of nights in Jersey. But prior to that, basically nothing had been played except for the one performance of Sane in the City. And to me, it's a little surprising that he wouldn't give them equal weight, but it definitely appears to me, at least going by the set list, that 50 years later, he considers this to be the more important of those two records. That's a that's a good point. And I, he probably does because he really he didn't do what he wanted to do on his first album. He was kind of pigeonholed, for better or for worse, as the whole singer songwriter thing. And he really had to fight to get anybody else on on the record. And this was a record that he brought his band in, as as I've said previously, and these are his guys and he wanted them on it. And he was tremendously proud to have to have them there and playing more of the music that that he was playing, that he was playing in the bars and in, you know, 1971 to, to 73. It wasn't the two months he spent doing coffee houses. It's just so fascinating because especially with the impact it's it's having presently on the tour, this is really a record he wanted to bring his band in, but this is a band that really didn't exist for much longer, uh, really just a few months more after this because Vinny would leave. And then, as you noted, Carter came in and then Carter and Davey Sanctious left together to go start Tone was the name of the band, right? Yeah. But, yeah. And, but and, he- and then, of course, Max and Roy come in and... From there, we go into that classic era of Bruce Springsteen East Street Band, where from 1975 to 1985, they were certainly one of the most significant rock bands that the world has ever seen. 
Well, by the way, you said that this band didn't exist for much longer after this album came out. They were the the, the musicians were, were replaced. It wasn't like the band broke up. No, uh, but I think when you change a drummer, and obviously with the impact that Sanctus was having on this record, when you change personnel like that, it this. I should have said this incarnation of the band, perhaps. Okay. But the band really did change quite heavily, as we know. Now, Clarence remains the signature sound, and he was there, uh, and he was more utilized on this record than really he had been on on Greetings, as we know. But it, it, it does seem to me like this band that existed in that time. And that's why when we spoke to Nikki Germain, it was so fascinating because, and we talked about that, she had... The images, well, Vinny was gone already at that time, but she had the images of this band that was really a different musical entity than it would become starting with the arrival of Max and Roy. Now, Bruce did talk about that at, at the symposium, talking about oh, how, did. yeah, how he had it was half black, half white, and the uh, Davy Sanchez and what uh, Boom Carter brought to the band was definitely unique, and they were they were definitely more of a rock and soul band at that time. And he did say he, he wished he could have done, he wished he could have had that band a little bit longer. And it, that would have been different. I, I wonder if, how Born to Run would have sounded with, with those guys on it in, instead of Roy and Max, but that whole alternate, alternate universe. Uh, yeah. Well, probably we'll, we'll never know. Well, I think we can say for sure that by the time you get to 1984, Born in the USA would not have existed in anywhere near the same fashion. There's not uh, how many top 10 singles were on, bo- were on <laughs> Born in the USA? Seven. Right. I think there were seven. There would not have been a record with seven hit singles because I, and taking nothing away from this band, I think we, we couldn't have praised, especially David Sanctious, more than we have. But it, that was not a band that was going to lead to that kind of pop success you you would agree with that assessment right well you know that's a good question i'm not sure because it's in 1975 it didn't seem like they were going to reach that kind of level of of commercial success and and radio airplay so and it was def and it was always bruce leading the band it's not like what what sanchez and carter would have been doing would have been totally different they would have done what bruce told them to do I just think that he, he would have achieved some success. Now, what whether it would have been as big as USA was, I don't know. But I still think it's him. It's him powering, telling the band what to do and directing them. And he gives them freedom to do things. But at the same time, he says, no, I, he tells them what he does want. And so I think he would have still gotten there. It might not have been as, as big, but he would have gotten there. Yeah, maybe, whatever. That's, again, a question we're never (laughs) going to answer. Of course, we know what happened once Roy and Max came in, and you know, maybe it's me showing my bias, especially since I think those two guys are so incredibly significant to what Bruce accomplished. I'm not saying he wouldn't have accomplished great things without them, but Roy and Max are really incredible at what they do and fit so well into that band and it's hard to imagine the last 50 years without them totally agree uh but at the same time you got, i gotta point out that boom carter was he did play on born to run and i assume he Sanchez did? was there as well so you know they they still were going in that direction now whether what would have happened after that i you know as i as we said we we don't know but 
up through up through summer of 74. He that was the band who recorded Born to Run. All right. Well, I'll give you the final word on that since we're never going to be able to answer these questions. <laughs> and I'll just wrap it up. None But the Brave is a presentation of Evergreen Podcast produced by Bull Market Entertainment. Please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Podcast, And on Twitter, we're at MBTB Podcast. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks for listening and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Hey, you. Did you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Did you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at Tuesday. 020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.